This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Our hot question of the day today has to do with what is being discussed over in the UK. They have a department there for digital culture, media and, and sport. And that department has proposed an independent watchdog that's going to write a code of practice for tech companies. And what that code of practice means is that senior managers could then be held liable for breaching that code with a possible levy on the industry to help fund this office as well. Uh, They're talking about making sure that they can find companies that break the rules. Uh, They want to force internet service providers to block sites that break the rules if need be. Uh, And essentially when they outlined this, the culture secretary in the UK said, the era of self-regulation for online companies is over. Now, do you think that's true? I mean, we've got, you know, we learned so much about the negative impacts of social media. When it all started, it was great, right? It was sunshines, unicorns, puppies, all of that, helping you to keep in touch with old friends, find old friends, happy stories. But we know now, years later, that is not the case. There's a dark side to social media as well. There is misinformation. There is trolling. There is electoral interference. And we're learning more and more about how that is impacting our daily lives and our society. So we're looking at what the UK is doing today. And we're asking you, do you think social media companies in Canada also need more regulation? Do you say, yes, they definitely need more oversight? Or no, that's a threat to free speech. Now, I want you to think about this one and give us your answer. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. You can go and call our buzz line. That number is 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. Let us know what you think about that. And if you are online, yes, on social media, you can go to Twitter and cast your vote there. You'll find it at my account, which is simisarah980, or you can also go to our CKNW account, which is at CKNW, and cast your vote. So do social media companies need more regulation in Canada to stem the tide of misinformation, trolling, and electoral interference? Is it time for us to do something about all of that? They are trying to, it sounds like, at least look like they're doing something. We heard how Facebook this morning announced that half a dozen pages or so were taken down this morning. They're saying they're enforcing their policy on extremist content and hate groups. Some people might say that's too little too late. So where do you come down on should Canada be considering what the UK is doing as well? We're going to be talking more about it a little later, but let's hear what you have to say on the topic. You know, the world is a different place today than it was just a few years ago. When the United States held its elections in 2016, the idea of foreign interference in the process was, you know, still a new one. Now we know differently, right? Uh, We have an election coming up this fall, and today the Communications Security Establishment published a report on cyber threats to our electoral process, and the news was not good. The report says it's very likely Canadian voters will encounter some form of cyber interference in the upcoming election. And that could be anything from websites being created to fake social media accounts and more. And speaking of those fake social media accounts, one of the places where you see a lot of that misinformation spreading is Facebook. And there's a lot about Facebook in the news today. In the UK, as we've been talking about, the British government is proposing direct regulation of social media companies for the first time. They're talking about making it so that senior executives could face fines if they fail to block content such as uh, terrorist propaganda or images of child abuse. That's going to be a big deal. And just in the past hour, we've learned that here in Canada, six Canadian Facebook pages were taken down today. As a social media company says, it's enforcing its policy on extremist content and hate groups. We're going to be hearing more about that uh, later in the show. But when it comes to elections then, how can we deal with this? What are we going to do? The Minister of Democratic Institutions is Karina Gould, and she said this morning that Canadians can have confidence in the voting process because we cast our votes on paper. But she said, we need to take care when assessing information surrounding the election. Where we have vulnerabilities is when it comes to individuals, both Canadian voters, when it comes to politicians, and in fact, when it comes to the media as well, and the information that we have and the information that we consume. And we know that there are disinformation campaigns that have gone on around the world to try and influence voters and how they make their decisions. 
at the end of the day, when a, Canadian's de- when a Canadian decides who they vote for, the results are correct. Those are the results because Canadians have made their decision based on the information that they have at their disposal. What this report is trying to do is to say, here are the different methods that may be used during an election to try and influence your vote. Take the power back, be critical, look at the information, look at the sources that you're getting, and use that to make your decision. That is Karina Gould, the Minister of Democratic Institutions. Now, to talk more about this, we're joined now by Jeff Semple, who's a senior correspondent for Global National News and host of the Russia Rising podcast. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, great to be with you, Simi. What did you think when you heard this news then? Do you think Canada's particularly vulnerable on this? Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't think we should be surprised to hear that news coming from our elected officials and our you know, security establishments warning that Canada should expect that there will be some level of foreign interference during our election because that's just, as you say, sort of the world we live in now. I think in that, in that report they said that last year half of all advanced democracies that had national elections were targeted by some kind of cyber threat activity and that represented a threefold increase since 2015. So all of this is changing very quickly and I think Canadians should expect that. I think, you know, as they alluded to there, I don't think most people are expecting that we would see a meddling campaign the likes that we saw during the last US election, certainly not on that scale, but still you know, significant. I mean, when we looked through, as, a, as part of our research for the podcast, Russia Rising, I looked through thousands of tweets that Twitter had identified as coming from this now infamous Russian troll factory that was set up in St. Petersburg a few years ago. And there were thousands of tweets that most of them were targeted at the United States, but there were thousands there that, that specifically mentioned Canadian issues and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And as we looked through those tweets, it was, you know, it was quite interesting because Oftentimes, they weren't promoting one particular candidate or one particular side of an emotional debate, such as immigration. They were promoting both sides. And you really could sort of infer from that that at least one of the goals was to try and sow confusion, make things feel and seem more divisive than they really are, and and really just to sort of turn Canadians against each other and, and create confusion about some of the issues. That is so fascinating. So you're saying, like, we tend to think of it as them trying to influence one version, you know, one side of something, but you're saying they were just trying to amplify the debate. Yeah, that was a, I mean, that was a big part of it. And I think that was probably one of the most underreported storylines that came out of all of this. I mean, there was so much talk, you know, and has been and continues to be with the Mueller investigation that's now just recently concluded about, you know, these allegations that Russia was trying to get Donald Trump elected. Um, but really, again, even when you look at the U.S. example, a lot of the effort was just focused on trying to sow division within the United States and really poking at some of these particularly divisive emotive issues such as migration, such as race. Um, and that that was sort of at least at least, you know, part of their motivation was to try and sow conflict in these Western democ- democracies, including Canada. Right. So what does Russia get out of all this, though, Jeff? Well, that was one of the the questions we really sort of tried to delve into as part of our Russia Rising podcast series uh, is to look at the motivation. Um, And, you know, what? there's no one sort of silver bullet answer to that question. And it really depends on who you ask. I mean, there are but there are a number of prevailing theories. And I think uh, one of them was that um, President Putin, you know, has has a real interest in making these Western democracies that often stand in his way appear dysfunctional, uh, even from ordinary Russians who, you know, look over at Western Europe and across the ocean to North America and, you know, see the Western version of democracy as being dysfunctional, uh, extremely polarized in contrast to Putin's version of what's often called managed democracy, sort of a one-man autocracy, that in contrast can appear, you know, strong and stable under his leadership. And I think, you know, Putin would have a vested interest in undermining Western alliances, such as the European Union and NATO in particular, that have, you know, in the past stood in his way of trying, when he tries to exert his sort of power and sphere of influence in the region and in countries surrounding Russia, such as Ukraine, for example, and that the weaker that these Western alliances become and the weaker these Western countries become, the easier it is for Putin to flex his muscle right. in the region and elsewhere without having to worry about a Western unified response. 
Right. So when we hear stories like this, then, and, you know, alerts essentially for us to be aware of what could happen leading up to the election, we need to know what it looks like, though. So is it hard to tell when this debate is being amplified or is it fake or is it real? Yeah, and I mean, you know, this is the one of the, the more chilling details that came out of our research was that, you know, when we look at the example of, you know, the meddling came the campaign that happened before the last U.S. election, it's worth noting that the number of tweets actually went up after the last U.S. election. And I'm talking about tweets coming from this troll factory, so it didn't end there. Um, and that, you know, these tweets were retweeted and liked millions of times by ordinary real Twitter users, uh, including many Canadians who were retweeting this, you know, fake news or, you know, these debates that were happening online. And it's a hard question to answer in terms of just, you know, how to identify these things. I mean, there are some, I mean, I think the biggest takeaway is just to sort of bring a healthy level of skepticism and suspicion in terms of what you read on social media and online, you know, particularly now as we head soon into a federal election campaign. I mean, some of these Twitter accounts were totally mundane and they would comment on things like Canadian sports results, for example. Um, you know, some of the time. So they weren't always, you know, it wasn't like a guy named Igor who, you know, pretends that he's living in like Vancouver and, and you know, I mean, it wasn't yeah. always that obvious. And and as, you know, people who really studied this stuff, um, in, including one uh, professor we interviewed at Clemson University who looked, they actually have a social media listening center. So they have the largest archive of tweets that came from this troll factory he you know noted that the tweets got sneakier they got more clever and harder to identify as time went on so i think you know generally speaking just you know maybe second guess the sources that you're seeing uh, in the same way that i you know often say it's like growing going into a grocery store and buying some food right you want to yeah. know who made the who where, you know who who manufactured the food let's look at the ingredients you know let's do a little bit of research before we put that food into our bodies and maybe we need to start thinking about information online in a similar way the way you describe it though jeff is just unreal i mean how the amount of effort and the amount of people that russia must be throwing at this is just huge well, funnily enough, actually, um, the numbers weren't necessarily as big as, as you might expect. And actually, they were able to do quite a lot with <laughs> the relatively oh. small number of people. There's never been, a, that I've seen or heard anyway, a very, like a clear number of how many people were, say, employed by this particular troll factory. But, you know, we aren't talking about thousands and thousands of people, um, maybe around a thousand, and that they had a budget of around a million dollars a week. Again, I'm talking around the time of the last U.S. election. And from that, they were able to buy all these ads on Facebook. They were, I mean, there are incredible stories about how they were order, able to actually organize dozens of political rallies, both for and against immigration, for example, in the United States. And they were organizing these rallies on social media from St. Petersburg. Um, and some of these rallies got violence and made national news in the United States. And they were able to do all of this sitting from their desks in wow. St. Petersburg. Um, so, you know, pretty incredible. Uh, I mean, yeah. you know, got to give them at least some credit in that for being effective. But it's worth noting, I mean, at, at the time anyway, there was a uh, there was a U.S. department that focused specifically on the United States. And then there was an international department that focused on other Western countries, including Canada. So. You know, I don't, I mean, obviously, you know, Canada is an important ally of the United States and, you know, the UK and France, et cetera. But I don't, you know, it's also important not to overstate, you know, the threat. I mean, I do see a lot of Twitter activity now where people are just, you know, having a healthy debate. And I think what looks to be legitimate Canadian Twitter accounts are being accused of being Russian trolls. So we can get a little carried away as well. I think it's just worth being wary of, that's all, and, and, and just being a little bit skeptical, um, particularly when you see even things that are like advertisements on social media. Um, so if you, you know, the, the, these Twitter accounts would like to often, you know, on the immigration thing, they love to post fake news stories about yeah. immigrants being involved in crime. Um, and sometimes they weren't even fake. They were real stories, but they would amplify them uh, and, and exaggerate them and, and make it feel like this was happening all the time when maybe it wasn't. So fascinating. Jeff, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Simi. That's Jeff Semple, who is a senior correspondent for Global National News. We are going to be talking about loneliness in this city and in this region. A lot of people talk about the problem of isolation and loneliness and the toll that it takes. And if you've got a story, we would love to hear it. So coming up in this half hour, we are going to be taking your call. So get ready to give us a call on that 604 280 
888-880-9898. I can't believe I forgot the phone number. It's a Monday morning, right? 604-280-9898 if you want to weigh in on this. And here's why we're going to be talking about it today, because many people in Vancouver do say they experience loneliness. Uh, we're going to talk about how one group in particular experiences that, and they're people with developmental disabilities, because very often, you know, there are difficulties in accessing resources, getting out, and, you know, just having an everyday life. But there is a local group that had an announcement today that could help in this regard. And Denise Haskett joins us now, Executive Director and Community Leader for Large Greater Vancouver. Denise, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, tell me about this announcement today. Well, we're just so excited to announce that we are in the midst of a redevelopment of our current site. And on that site, um, there'll be three Larsh homes and Larsh is an intentional community. We're actually an international federation of communities around the world. And for us, um, it's so important that people um, commit to one another and have one another to walk with in this in this life. And so L'Arche is um, creating a project where we can expand our mission to serve more adults with developmental disabilities through uh, three large homes, and then um, 10 units of housing for people who can live more independently, as well as affordable housing for um, people who would wish to live in an intentional, diverse community setting. Right. So there'll be uh, 29 units of additional housing for um families and individuals who wish to live in this kind of an environment. That's nice. You called it an intentional community. What does that mean, Denise? Yeah. Well, what it means is that uh, so people come together around a, a set of common values and principles. And in L'Arche, it means that we commit to journey with one another. So when people come to live in our L'Arche homes, and it's people with and without developmental disabilities. They they share their lives together. They share um, the fun, the the cooking, the 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 work of of being. It's like a family setting. And um, yeah, we yeah. we are a committed group of people, faith based. We are um, a faith based community as well. How, so has this worked elsewhere? This particular type of model. Yes. Um, well, there's 152 L'Arche communities around the world in 38 countries. And so certainly L'Arche has worked around the world for over 55 years. Uh, L'Arche in Burnaby is 45 years old. We're celebrating our, our 45th anniversary this month. And But this is a new model. Um, normally, it's just our little L'Arche homes but we're expanding um, in order to just welcome more people to experience community. And we're just very aware of the reality of the uh, housing crisis and affordability and safe, secure places for people to live. So um, that's another way that we're expanding our mission. Was dealing with loneliness a goal when thinking about and constructing this community? Um, absolutely. I mean, as you you said at the beginning, um, Adults with developmental disabilities often face particular challenges um, because the resources just aren't there for them in terms of meaningful work and daytime activities and and things that just make our lives um, just richer. And so, yeah, being in a supportive community um, where people care about you and uh, know where you are and, and what you're up to is just a really important um, aspect of this whole project is just... Right. So yeah, what, what is the timeline like then for getting this bill? Because it sounds to me like this is something a lot of people need. Mm, yes. I mean, we're hoping it could be a model for all kinds of organizations. Um, we're planning to move in in the fall, winter of 2021. So construction will start next year in the spring and um, we're working with a wonderful group called TL Housing Solutions to help us with this. So Denise, and we've also, sorry, I'll just say we've yep. had wonderful support from BC Housing as well. We received a grant of $6.1 to help us with this as well as many generous donors. So we're very, very lucky. 
Okay. Um, so then when you look at it and you think about loneliness, have you heard stories from people about how difficult that is in, in making sure people don't get isolated? Well, I mean, I think it's it's a reality in our society, um, not just for people with developmental disabilities. There's seniors. I mean, any anybody can can face that. And so, certainly, I've read about it. I I do know individuals um, with developmental disabilities that are kind of uh, maybe can live more independently, but they're on their own in a in a basement suite somewhere and don't necessarily have. A lot of connections out there and yeah I just think it it responds to a, a really important need in our society. Do you think we have become more isolated Denise from each other? Hmm. Well I think that's I think that's I mean I, I'm, I don't pretend to be an expert about it but I I think as a society it's yeah we tend to be pretty individualistic and, um, yeah. We just all need a little help in that regard then. We so, do. I yeah. think all of us do. I think all of us need community. I mean, it's not unique in that sense. Yeah, that's so true. Okay, so this is, mm-hmm. it sounds like it's going to be very needed then. So very, you were very excited about this project. Very excited about it, that's for sure. Yeah, it's about 10 years in the making, and, and the dream is, is really coming to a reality. So we're, we're just thrilled. Now, I know that you're focusing on people with developmental disabilities. What kind of change have you seen in people once they are able to live in a community like this, Denise? And like, does it open them up? Do you see them, their personalities change? Well, I think, you know, central to L'Arche is really like one of the common principles or values is that everyone has unique gifts to offer. Mm -hmm. And I think people with developmental disabilities have a particular gift to offer our society because they're really people of the heart and um, they, they really invite people into relationship and they remind us of our need for one another. Um, you know, we in our humanity, it's, uh, yeah, I, I just think Larsh really has that aspect of, of really valuing every single person and the gifts that they have to offer. Well, Denise, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate that. That is Denise Haskett, who's the Executive Director and Community Leader for Larsh Greater Vancouver. Wow, okay, as if there isn't enough going on already. Today, we've been talking about social media companies and the role they play in our society. Our government says we're not getting enough cooperation from the world's biggest social media companies, uh, especially when it comes to trying to head off foreign interference in our upcoming federal election. And remember, this is going to be a big deal. Uh, Democratic Institutions Minister Karina Gould says that federal officials have actually had several discussions with online platforms such as Facebook and Twitter on how they plan to protect Canadians during the election process. But she says there hasn't been much progress in dealing with potential threats. From experiences that we've seen around the world, um, that there's a a lot left to be desired in terms of how seriously they're taking these issues. Um, And, uh, you know, we continue to engage with them and continue to have conversations. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling great about where we are right now. All right. So that is Karina Gould, our Democratic Institutions Minister. Now, there was that assessment released today by the country's communication security establishment saying that in the last year, half of all advanced democracies that were holding national elections were targeted by cyber threat activity. That's a threefold increase since 2015, and they expect that trend to continue this year. So what can Canada do about this? And all of this coming on the backdrop of what's happening as well in the United Kingdom and where they're attempting to crack down on social media companies. Uh, joining us now is Jane Litvinenko, who's a reporter on the disinformation beat of BuzzFeed News. Jane, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Does it sound like Canada is actually prepared for what might happen? It really doesn't. So (laughs) the report that the CSC released today is actually their second report warning about potential election interference. They released a first one, um, I believe a couple of years ago now, saying that Canada will be targeted, our elections are not safe. And even though Facebook has announced a couple of election initiatives, 
we haven't really seen any progress or any concrete proactive plan from the platforms on how our democracy will be safeguarded. Are the platforms not taking this seriously enough still after all this? It's difficult to say. In the most recent elections, they have attempted to be proactive. They've taken down networks of bad actors. But uh, we also know that, you know, one network being taken down is not necessarily going to thwart the bad actors who are trying to influence elections. And what we need from Facebook is not just a hotline where MPs can email if they see something going wrong and we don't necessarily need to see a small proactive effort uh, to take down disinformation networks, but we need a concrete plan as to how the bad actors are going to be stopped. Has any country come up with that kind of concrete plan? (laughs) It's difficult, right? Because when it comes to the internet, there's no borders. We can get attacked from uh, all directions, including internally. And uh, it's, it's a lot to account for. So far, there hasn't really been anybody who has, you know, successfully 100% protected them. But as these things keep going on and happening over the years, I think that there's an opportunity to learn from previous experiences and say, okay, here's what we've seen, here's what we might see in the future, and here's what we could potentially do about it. And what do you think, Jane, of what the UK is trying to do in terms of, you know, essentially regulating that industry overall? So the UK is really interesting because a little while ago they embarked on this 18-month study to figure out what is happening on social media. And their committee, uh, one of their committees issued this scaling report that called Facebook digital gangsters. And now today they just published a white paper calling for, uh, first of all, an independent body that would be uh, enforcing stringent standards on social media. They're calling for social media companies to take down any harmful content. And they're especially focusing on children. Because remember, this lack of borders on the internet means that our children and our elderly, anybody who's sort of new to the internet, uh, they're in harm's way as well. So uh, their regulations, they haven't been uh, passed into law yet, so we can't know how effective they will be. But they are pretty vast and far-reaching. Right, but they are trying to do something, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, uh, so is Australia, which uh, recently passed an extremely stringent law that allows them to put executives in jail for up to three years and fine the company up to 10% of their uh, revenue if, uh, if they don't take down violent content in good time. Why is it, Jane, do you think that these companies don't seem to be getting the message here as well? Like, clearly, the drumbeat has been coming for some time now, but they really haven't made the moves necessary to hold off regulation. You know, uh, I've spoken to a few academics who have been studying hate speech on these platforms for years now. And something that they all say collectively is that hate speech, violent speech, angry speech, uh, it travels really well on these platforms. It keeps users engaged. And when it comes to just posting articles or any kind of hateful content, it has very high potential to make money. And so I think that a lot of the time, the financial benefits of keeping users on the platform probably comes into play for these companies. That that outweighs trying to get them off the platform or criticize them. It seems so, although uh, Facebook today announced that it's banning uh, Faith Goldie, Soldiers of Odin, and four other white nationalist groups in Canada from its platform. Now, that's by no means all groups or even most of them, but it's a start. It seems like uh, recently Facebook has started getting the message that they will be regulated whether they like it or not, and that hate speech on their platforms is not okay. We'll see. Jane, thank you so much for talking to us about it today. 
Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate that. That is Jane Litvinenko, who's a reporter on the disinformation beat for BuzzFeed News. Let's return to our top story today and what we were talking about. And that was the urgently called press conference this morning. That's the way Attorney General David Eby put it. And at that press conference, he announced a shocking finding from the ongoing report on money laundering in this province that's being undertaken by a retired RCMP officer, Peter German. Have a listen. And the particular piece of information that uh, Dr. German's team has uh, apparently uncovered is that despite uh, two years of headlines about this issue, that there are apparently uh, no federally funded, uh, dedicated police officers working on money laundering in British Columbia. That, David Eby, this morning. Now, as part of the chapter that was released today, Dr. German is advising the B.C. government that the RCMP team that is assigned to deal with anti-money laundering is more than three-quarters unstaffed. We're going to talk more about these developments now with the help of Dr. Peter German, a lawyer and former RCMP deputy commissioner and author of the report. Dr. German, thank you for joining us. It's just a pleasure, Sarah. Now, were you surprised when you came to that finding, when you asked the RCMP about their staffing levels, and that's what came back to you? Yeah, well, Sydney, that's essentially what it was. I simply asked a question. I was curious what the resources were in terms of the federal business line, and the answer I got back was 26. And my second question, well, how many are staffed? The answer was 11. And then uh, when I met with the RCMP, they they indicated that really there's only five in place at present, and those uh, folks are doing what we refer to as referrals to uh, civil forfeiture, which is in the provincial domain. So it was uh, a bit alarming. Yeah, and I had a bunch of emails from people on this asking the question, Dr. German, well, what does that mean exactly? Like, what is the role of, why should the federal government then fund money laundering investigations in BC? What difference does that make? Right. So the RCMP has various different mandates, federal, provincial, as a provincial police force and as a municipal police uh, force in a lot of jurisdictions. But in terms of federal, the federal force is responsible for matters of national significance. And uh, they have a very large component called federal and serious organized crime. So they deal with top threat type issues, organized crime and so forth. And uh, so what is surprising is that there is nobody dedicated uh, to money laundering, although those positions exist. They're just not, uh, they're not staffed at present. So what is the downside to having, you know, BC investigate this on its own? Well, there's nothing wrong with BC investigating, um, but the whole reason we're part of a country is that the federal government will assist us on these things that are of national importance. And what happens in Vancouver really is of national importance. I mean, this is a gateway to the, to the Pacific, to Asia, uh, Vancouver is a large, vibrant city. British Columbia, you know, a key province in, in the Confederation. So one would hope that the federal government would be supportive. And, and certainly Minister Blair has indicated that the federal government wishes to support what's taking place here. So that, it almost sounds like starting from scratch, though, doesn't it, Dr. German, if there's five out of 25 of these positions actually staffed? Yeah, and I suspect the problem goes back a few years in that the dedicated proceeds of crime money laundering unit was abolished in 2013 uh, when the force moved to other priorities and a restructuring. You know, there were legitimate reasons for these other priorities and for the restructuring, but unfortunately, uh, this proceeds of crime was eliminated, in, in, and uh, there go the specialists, there go uh, the interdisciplinary team of lawyers, accountants, property management specialists, investigators who were uh, working this area. And so now you essentially have to rebuild that capacity. When do you anticipate the release of the rest of your report? That's entirely in the hands of the Attorney General and government. He indicated today that uh, there would probably be another announcement with respect to luxury cars at some point, and that the uh, report, as well as uh, Ms. Maloney's uh, parallel report, would be going to cabinet at some point. So I really don't know. That would be a question for the government. So when you look at luxury cars, real estate, housing, casinos, is there any area of our of BC that isn't touched by money laundering at this point? <laughs> well, you'll have to wait to see the rest of the report, I suppose, uh, uh, Sydney, on that one. Um, but certainly, you know, money laundering is, is a vulnerability for any cash-based business. And uh, that's why this is so important. And of course, organized crime uh, operates uh, with cash. That's uh, They have to get that cash into the system. That's what money laundering is all about, so that they can use it, buy more products such as drugs, and uh, also take their profits. 
And now given the spotlight that money laundering has been under in the last couple of years in this province, has, do you think anything has changed? Uh, has that forced organized crime to move off elsewhere or is this all still going on, do you think? Well, about the only thing I could really comment on there is I'm pretty comfortable with what took place as a result of the casino, the, you know, the emphasis on the casinos, not just the report, dirty money, but certainly uh, there was work done before that by uh, provincial RCMP units. Uh, the federal RCMP were involved in, in a few years ago. Um, certainly there was an awareness growing and then uh, government accepted all the recommendations from dirty money. Uh, you know, I'm, I'd like to think that the situation that did exist in 2015 in the casinos doesn't exist there now. The problem, of course, is where did the money go? Right. So if the federal government were to take this seriously then, start getting involved, start funding some of these money laundering investigations, what would that look like then? Do you think that would be more charges, bigger investigations? Like, What's the difference between the federal government and the provincial government when it comes to uh, making sure these go to court? Right. So, you know, there has to be a balance between uh, good regulation. Um, we have a financial intelligence unit uh, at the federal level, FinTrack. Uh, right. That's where banks and casinos send all their reports. So the federal government is invested in dealing with money laundering. But all of these things have to work. The regulatory side has to work. Um, and then you have to have an enforcement component. Because if there's no enforcement component, then why worry? If you're, if you're the organized crime individual... Um, there has to be a downside. Right. So you're saying that the extra pressure from the federal government is necessary. Well, I'm simply pointing out that there are no RCMP resources. And I think the minister made the point uh, this morning that he wants to see that change. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really just pointing out the facts. Do you see more areas to look into, Dr. German? Uh, I'm not trying to make this my life's work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I, we did our best with the casino report. Now we've done our best with this second one. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, what we're hoping for are some holistic fixes. And it all, again, goes back to a proper regulatory scheme, having the right laws in place, and also having an enforcement mechanism. All right. Well, we look forward to hearing more about your report. Dr. German, thanks for your time. You are most welcome. Thank you. That is Dr. Peter German, a lawyer and former RCMP deputy commissioner. He's also the author of some of these uh, reports that the government has commissioned on money laundering in this province. Well, let's take you back, shall we? Back 25 years ago to April 8th, 1994. Do you remember where you were when you heard that Kurt Cobain was dead? He was found on this day in 1994, and here's how ABC News reported on it. Kurt Cobain was the lead singer of the group Nirvana. Their albums were bestsellers, their songs filled with images of despair and violence. One lyric, the sun is gone, but I have a light, the day is done, but I'm having fun. And then this morning, his body found at home, another casualty of success. Here's ABC's Tom Foreman. As lead singer, songwriter, and guitar player for Nirvana, Kurt Cobain defined the rough rock sound and scruffy look known as grunge. With songs like Lithium and Heart-Shaped Box, his band was sitting on top of the rock music world. This morning, an electrician went to Cobain's suburban Seattle home to do some work, looked in a window over the garage, and saw a body. It was obvious this man is dead from a shotgun wound to the head. Now, there was a suicide note left inside the, the house. Recently, it was clear Cobain was in trouble. Last month in Rome, he fell into a drug and alcohol-induced coma. Days ago, his band dropped out of a major American tour. It was rumored they were breaking up. Many people over 30 probably never heard of Kurt Cobain, but for younger fans, his music captured the spirit of the difficult transition from youth to maturity. His songs were full of despair and violent images. He was only 27. Tom Foreman, ABC News, Los Angeles. Sometimes you really do forget how great Nirvana was, especially that unplugged CD. That had a huge impact on so many people. And if you want to feel old for a moment, think about this. His daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, that he shares with Courtney Love. Well, Frances Bean Cobain is now 26 years old. 
We're going to talk about the legacy and the impact now of Kurt Cobain with the help of Alan Cross, our global news music commentator and host of the ongoing history of new music on CFOX. Alan, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. How big of a day was this 25 years ago? Do you remember it? I do. I was on the air that day, and this was pre-internet, pre-social media, even pre-email. So all we had to go on what was coming over, what was uh, coming over the the news wire, and whatever phone calls we could make out to Seattle to find out what was going on. So the news folded rather unslowly. It was started about one uh, forty-five Eastern time that day. It was a Friday afternoon, and over the next two hours, the information came out piecemeal. And I, I have a recording of me somewhere uh, to, at three thirty-eight that afternoon breaking in and telling everybody the news. And I think, oh, my God, don't mess this up. This is a generation JFK moment. This is the same kind of impact that uh, John Lennon's death or Elvis Presley's death had on on other generations. So don't screw it up. And I was right. Uh, It it became one of those those moments where you remember where you were, what you were doing and how you felt when you heard the news. That is so true. For people who don't remember, how significant, how significant of a band has Nirvana been, Alan? Uh, extremely. I would say that Nirvana has become the last real superstar rock band uh, to come out. So much has changed in the, in the world of music with the rise of hip-hop and R&B and with the changes in technology. That you know, our, Nirvana was that one of that, those bands that organically came out of nowhere to sell probably 30 million copies of, uh, of Nevermind. And everybody of a certain generation, a certain age, agreed that this was a good band. Yeah, that's and so true. People, for, people forget that we were, in 1991, we were in a musical sort of wasteland. Um, classic rock and the hair metal of the 1980s had grown stale and tired. And there was this huge group of Generation Xers who were really worried about their lot in life. For the first time since World War II, this is a generation that thought that, well, we might not be able to achieve the same standard of living as our parents. They were overeducated and unemployed, and there was a terrible recession. It was a a bad time to be uh, a young person for a lot of reasons. And Nirvana comes along, and Kurt Cobain has this way of somehow capturing and expressing their fears and anger and hopes and dreams and all those things. And it happens so fast. Uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit came out on the 27th of, I think it was the 27th of August of 1991. And then about a month later, three weeks later, Nevermind comes out. They thought, the record label thought, the band thought that, well, if we sell 100,000 copies over the lifetime of this record, we'll consider that to be a success. Within a month, this record was selling 300,000 copies a week. It's amazing. And by January, they had knocked Michael Jackson out of the number one spot on the album charts. That is unreal. I think we forget, Alan, sometimes, like especially when you listen to them, how different their sound was. Like, right away, as soon as you heard them for the first time, you thought, well, I haven't heard something like that before. I was the first person to play the uh, Smell Like Teen Spirit on the radio in Toronto. A guy walked it into the studio. He said, put this on next. All right, fine. What is it? It's some uh, band from Seattle called Nirvana. Okay, fine. Put it on, and immediately, and I mean immediately, the phone started ringing. People going, what is this? Yeah. Tell me more. Again, you had to be there. <laughs> it, was, it was the last time I can remember uh, such a spontaneous, such an organic uh, coming together of, of rock fans with this consensus that, yep, this is what we want and this is good. That is so true. It's also such a throwback too, isn't it though? Like of how music today strikes me as being so overproduced and yet this was such an organic sound, as you said. Well, they recorded the album in two weeks. Uh, Kurt was unhappy with the way the album sounded at the end because he thought it sounded too polished. Oh. He thought it sounded too slick. Um, but <laughs> whoever, whoever, well, it was a guy named Andy Wallace who did the final mix, and he got it right because, man, that, uh, it, it, you know, never mind, has gone down in history as being one of the, the great classic rock records of all time. And like I said, 30 million copies, not bad. 
Yeah, what is their lasting influence, do you think? Was it the sound of their music? Is it their influence as a band? What is it? Well, uh, they were the leaders of the whole grunge thing. Uh, grunge was alternative music with uh, training wheels. So uh, what had been happening is that this mainstream scene had been happening, and uh, alternative, the alternative universe, had been happening uh, in a parallel course, kind of off to its side in its own little universe. Uh, Nirvana punched the hole between the two. And all of this music that had been for weirdos and outliers and outcasts and uh, disaffected people came flooding into mainstream culture, thanks to Nirvana and Grunge and a couple of other records from Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. And everything changed. Again, so fast. Everything from the 80s suddenly sounded overproduced, tame, boring, uh, fake. Yeah, it's so funny. Hearing you describe that, I'm thinking back to you going, yeah, that's exactly how it went and what happened. All of a sudden, it was almost like you realized, oh, now we're definitely in a new decade. Uh, Definitely. It was uh, the speed. uh, You know, 1991 will go down, 1991 and 1992 will go down in history as as, uh, years where there was a gigantic sea change in rock. And there there was another sea change happening at the same time that we didn't quite notice. And that was the rise of rap and hip-hop, because that was the beginning of the era of, of, of gangster rap and the East Coast, West Coast thing. So two things were happening simultaneously. It's just that rock took uh, most of the headlines because it was still the primary driver of culture when it came to music. But, uh, you know, we haven't seen anything like that since. We really, and I don't think we will. Do bands, do any bands today kind of hold up Nirvana as an influence? Oh, tons of them. Uh, I mean, we, we can go on for... For, for days, um, anybody who's ever picked up a guitar who's under the age of 30 today uh, has had uh, has been exposed to, to grunge and, and nirvana, and uh, there's just no way that some of that influence is not uh, rubbed off. And, you know, and Kurt's, Kurt's vocal abilities were one of those once-in-a-generation, maybe once-in-a-two-generation type voices that just had that, those qualities that you just cannot fake. And, you know, people have been looking for somebody like Kurt ever since. That is so true. Listen, Alan, thanks so much for talking about it with us. Oh, you're welcome. I, was I can't quite, believe it's 25 years. Me need, I was just thinking that in my head. Just thinking that. Alan, thank you. I can't believe it's been 25 years either. That's quite the trip down memory lane there with Alan Cross, Global News Music Commentator and host of the Ongoing History of New Music on CFOX. Anytime this topic comes up, I tell you, you can almost see people's blood start to boil in this province because we have been talking about it for years now, right? Three, four, five years now. And it just feels like not enough is being done about it. We can shout about it. We can interview people about it. We can take your phone calls about it. But if the people in charge aren't taking it seriously, then what are they thinking? Like, what is going on there? And I think that's why this press conference this morning is resonating with so many people people. So what happened was Attorney General David Eby had this press conference and he referred to it as an urgently called press conference this morning. And the reason why he said that is that there was a report that he had commissioned from Dr. Peter German, who was a lawyer, retired RCMP commissioner, uh, and as uh, just somebody who would look into money laundering. And remember he did the previous one that looked into money laundering at casinos. We still quote from that report all the time, hockey bags, like duffel bags full of money. That's where that information came from. So Peter German's new report is supposed to look into real estate, horse racing, and luxury cars and how money laundering impacts those industries in this province. He just submitted it to the government about a week or so ago. So we were thinking that it would be another couple of weeks, right, before we actually got any details. Bit surprised to hear this morning that they were having a press conference on this. And they did. The reason why is they wanted to highlight one specific finding from the report. So the rest of the report is still to come. But according to David Eby, that when they read this one particular thing in this report, they were so alarmed by it that they wanted to essentially make a big deal about it as soon as possible to really raise attention to this. He called it a shocking finding. Have a listen to this. The reason for the urgent release of this particular chapter is that in my opinion, it reveals a very concerning piece of information about why it is, in part, we've seen so few investigations and prosecutions of money laundering in BC, despite there being a widely recognized 
problem, an international problem of large-scale money laundering taking place, especially in Metro Vancouver. And the particular piece of information that uh, Dr. German's team has uh, apparently uncovered is that despite uh, two years of headlines about this issue, that there are apparently uh, no federally funded, uh, dedicated police officers working on money laundering in British Columbia. It is a startling piece of information, and it's an obviously troubling piece of information. I wanted for the public uh, and uh, for the federal government, and perhaps even for the RCMP, uh, to know what is happening in terms of the large-scale money laundering that appears to be happening through our provincial economy. And the answer is what is happening is uh, apparently uh, very little, if anything. Here's the thing. On paper, it says the RCMP have 25 officers in B.C. That actually isn't the case. There's 11 and of the, because the rest of the positions aren't staffed, they haven't filled those positions. Of the 11, six of them are away doing other things. They're getting additional training. They've been assigned to other duties, even though technically their job description still shows them in BC doing this. And so the remaining five now, remember five out of 25, are assigned to the civil forfeiture office to help, you know, find out which things can might be eligible for civil forfeiture. That is not helping to uncover the picture of money laundering right across the country. So now, David Eby says, the government of BC is asking for a few things from the feds. One is they recently announced some new resources for money laundering in the budget, uh, which was an important announcement. Um, But our interactions with the feds were based on the idea that there were already some resources working in British Columbia. So um, given the scale of the crisis that we face, that we're internationally recognized for the Vancouver model of money laundering, uh, that the resources uh, in the budget should immediately come to British Columbia. And the second is, given that we know that the money launderers are here, uh, that they're already rich, they're already expert, and they're clearly better resourced, uh, we need to not start from scratch on this. Uh, We need for the people who come to British Columbia, the police officers who come to British Columbia to have experience and that there should be effort to recruit people with experience and expertise in this area to come and work on it urgently in British Columbia. All right, so that is David Eby. Now, Dr. Peter German, who's the author of the report, was actually a guest on our show about an hour ago, and he explained the difference between provincial and federal money laundering police officers and why that matters. And he explained why the Canadian government should be stepping in to help. Well, there's nothing wrong with BC investigating, um, but the whole reason we're part of a country is that the federal government will assist us on these things that are of national importance. And what happens in Vancouver really is of national importance. I mean, this is a gateway to the to the Pacific, to Asia. Vancouver is a large, vibrant city. British Columbia, you know, a key province in, in the Confederation. So one would hope that the federal government would be supportive. And, and certainly Minister Blair has indicated that the federal government wishes to support what's taking place here. All right. So that is Dr. Peter German talking about this. have to admit, I'm a bit puzzled as well by the BC Liberal response to this. Uh, Mike Morris is the person they put forward to really respond to this. And he, of course, was the former public safety minister under the BC Liberal government and the former solicitor general. And he essentially said, there's no news here. He said, yeah, we knew about this. We knew about this years ago. There's nothing new here. And I'm thinking, that's what you're going with? You're going with, we knew about this years ago, therefore this isn't new? No, the problem is this was happening years ago and your government did nothing.